I'm Taffer. I'm Caddy. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah. This week we are continuing Anne of Green April, Anne of Green Gapril, whatever you want to call it, uh, with the second book in the series, Anne of Avonlea. Now last week we got into it, uh, this was Caddy's first introduction to Anne Shirley Cuthbert. Uh, we all had differing opinions on Anne Shirley Cuthbert, and this week we get to continue our exploration of rural PEI around the turn of the last century with Anne Shirley Cuthbert becoming a teacher at the age of 16. Yeah, and that's the interesting part. So this story sees um, Anne She's still in Avonlea. She's teaching. She's 16. Gilbert is also teaching not too far. So you remember Anne did not go to college because she needed to stay and help Marilla. And as we might remember, I didn't like that. Um, and uh, so Anne is like, she's debating between like, the type of teaching that she wants to do right and this is like she still gets up to her good old shenanigans and tomfoolery and what have you um but she also is in a position of authority now so this is a more mature and that we get to see and we also see the beginnings of a and i called it a love story blossoming between one Anne and one gilbert Indeed. Yeah. Um, I think I think getting into the teaching stuff is really interesting in this book. Um, and I I mean, I just love I love all the characters that we're introduced to in this book and all the sort of like the richness of the different personalities. I think that's one of the things that I like most about Ella Montgomery is is the characters she creates and and the all the little worlds. And the ways that she creates really flawed characters, but that she also writes about with affection. Um, but yeah, there's lots in this book. It's uh, I'm excited to get into it. Um, so we've touched a little bit on kind of teaching and uh, child rearing. Um, one really interesting element of this book is that Anne uh, really firmly believes that you should not hit children which at the time in her community is really um, surprising, out outrageous to some people. People keep telling her, well, how uh, will you maintain any order in your classroom if you don't beat these children? Um, and Anne really, really holds her firm line on that, that she does not want to hit them, that she wants to talk to them. And that, I think, is really interesting because it's a conversation we're still having around childcare and around teaching. Um, less in schools now, thankfully, but um, uh, around parenting. And uh, I, I think it was really cool for me to see that as part of the conversation 100 years ago and just kind of realize that, like, we're just we're still having these conversations and also realizing in a nice way that there were people having these conversations a hundred years ago that even a hundred years ago there were people being like maybe we shouldn't beat small children for talking big agree on that one um i actually i will confess 
I quite enjoyed this one. Um, I know, I know, I know. Cue the reactions of like, ooh, ah, finally, it was time. Um, I think that there, there's a nice maturity that I didn't um, get in the first, uh, in, in Anne of Green Gables, the first uh, book of the series that was there this time. And I think seeing Anne really reflect on these more mature themes was really nice. And it's, you know, I find that it's it's interesting to look at like, good kids versus bad kids uh you know and this this like habit that we have of just like assigning uh character like character traits to children from the second they sit down in school um yeah so it, it tackles this this habit that you know people who work with children and in education have to label kids uh you know based on character traits so uh the good kid the funny kid the bad kid the misguided kid the lost cause etc um and since Anne herself was one of those i guess more turbulent children or um children with more need she was a child who needed to be entertained, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I like that her position is pretty clear um, that she doesn't believe in, in, in corporal punishment, even though she does do it. Yeah, I really love how this book explores, A of all pedagogy, like it explores Anne's pedagogy. And it also, I think, I really love the examination in this book of sort of like the difference between ideals and practice and um, and sort of the way that you want to do things and then the way that you do do things and and how you think through that because I think I think that anyone who has been a child and then worked with children has experienced this like when I was a kid I thought that when I was an adult I would treat kids in this way and then I notice myself acting in a slightly different way as an adult and I have to kind of figure out how I feel about that. Um, and then on Caddy's point, I do, I really love, I love that there is the, that exploration of Anne using corporal punishment and then how she feels about having done it. Um, and, and I think there's a really important exploration there of, um, like how important it is to not lose your temper with kids. Yeah. So anyways, I, yeah, I, I really like sort of the us getting to see Anne as a teacher and explore that. Yeah, I've got to say, I mean, the, all three of us have worked with children. So all three of us, I think, can can relate to this kind of exploration of what works and what doesn't with kids. Um, I know as a parent, like that, that kind of, I'm going to try it just this one time because everybody is telling me that I have to try it and then trying it and then immediately regretting it. <laughs> is uh even even if it like quote unquote works um is so relatable I remember even like with my first kid with um everybody was talking about sleep training and I have a very uh laissez-faire approach to sleep training just like like I co-sleep with my kids and when they're ready like we kind of do everything every very intuitively um and when my first kid was little everybody was like you have to do cry it out you have to do cry it out your kid will grow up to be a horrible m monster. I don't know. And um, and I tried it. And, and it was just awful. It just sucked for all of us. My kid, like, did not sleep well um, and would wake up every five minutes panicking that I had left. And, uh, 
there's just like I really feel like like that is something when you work with children even if you have really firmly held convictions sometimes you screw that up and I find it really like kind of kind of affirming to be like no sometimes your gut instinct about how you need to interact with children is right 100 percent. i think that acknowledging that different people do things differently um and are able to i guess gain the respect of children because i think that is kind of the duality that we see with Anne's character in this uh in this episode it's this fact that you know, everyone is supposed to be raised in this very, like, authoritarian regime where, like, you are, actions have consequences, uh, good actions have no, con- like, few consequences, and bad actions have catastrophic uh, consequences. So it is nice to see some form of, of reflection. And, and it also speaks to the fact that Anne is a character who's supposed to walk to the beat of her own drum. Um, and uh, kind of like uh, you, Teffer, I guess. Huh? Um, so I think there is something to be said about that um, character trait for Anne continuing through uh, from the first book. I think in the first book, it's, it's done in a very childish way because she is a child. And uh, in this in, in this volume, it's more of a like um, she's she's much more anchored in who she is. She's very comfortable knowing that she doesn't want to uh, just dole out discipline. She wants to create an environment that's favorable for children to learn. And to think about the that the, the fact that this was written at the beginning of the 20th century is actually quite revolutionary. Like it is really interesting. Um I guess it also depends on the the the, the religious context of the area, which I don't know much about religion in uh the maritimes in early 20th century so you'll forgive me um but i think that there is something something very nice and something very education centered right it's understanding that education is not just something that you know you slap kids around and then at some point they fall in line no it's it's you know and having children write about their experiences instead of learning uh by rote memorization it's 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 you know favoring uh children who are individuals as opposed to simply like these little uh i guess figures that 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 are made to be seen and not heard and things like that so so i find i I really um i'm starting to appreciate and yeah doing this read has really hit home for me that there is there's a big I think tone shift between the first book and the rest of them which is really interesting um and so I'm 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 glad I mean you're allowed to not like the end books if you want to but I'm glad that you are enjoying that tone shift I guess um because I think in the first one the first one is very much it's a book about Anne um whereas I think starting with this book it broadens into Anne is still the primary character, but it's about a lot more than Anne. And I think we we really see that in that the the kind of climax of this book is not um, Anne realizing that she's going to get to go to college the following year. It's Miss Lavender's wedding. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it is really emerging into a book about the town. And uh, as I mentioned last week, I think 
I've never read farther than Anne of Avonlea, uh, and I think I've only read Aven- Anne of Avonlea once, and I had forgotten most of it. Um, and I'm also enjoying it, but I did enjoy the first read of Anne of Green Gables. Uh, but I agree with Caddy that I kind of get these books more. And um, I do kind of feel like that's because Anne goes from being a young teenager to being an older teenager and someone we can maybe relate to a little bit better. The tone the tone is definitely different and it's enjoyable and it's fun. Um, barring one thing, if we are keep talking about discipline, there is one character that I wish um, had been uh, given a good talking to, I guess. And uh, that would be one Davy, um, because uh, what happens is that Anne and her old aunt um they adopt twins uh, <laughs> and that's what it is uh, um they adopt twins uh, davy and dora and uh dora is too perfect so it's like they don't really like her because she's perfect and then there's this little annoying little Anyways, with with some dangerous traits for his future uh, characters, uh, Davy, who is, I guess, the king of shenanigans um, and who likes to dole out. I don't know. I think he's just taking his like it's likely in a 21st century uh, analysis. He's taking his trauma and just putting it on everyone else. Um, But, you know, that's a character that needed a certain amount of structure and discipline but who was met with this unwavering like wave of love from Anne and her aunt so it's uh there's something particular there like that's one character I would have liked to see disciplined uh him and the parrot I I definitely have trouble with Davy and Dora um and I'm so I'm glad that you brought that up like yeah, because I think I think the impulse and the impulse that the the author follows and Anne follows is um, the you know there is often something very charming about kids like Davy who are very I'm going to use the word rascally, um, but there's also yeah he definitely I think I think there's something for sure to be said about giving kids the benefit of the doubt and not labeling kids as bad like that's very important to me. But he doesn't, there are a few things that he, yeah, maybe could have, could have gotten more, more of a talking to for, or been, been taught how his actions matter in different ways. Um, And then I also, the treatment of Dora really bothers me. Um, And I'm curious to see how you two feel, because it's, and it is brought up many times. It's like, oh yes, Dora was perfect, sweet, good child. And as a result, Anne and Marilla were just kind of like, whatever about her. Um, And I think maybe this particularly wounds me because I was a very well-behaved, very sweet, very obedient kid. Um, And yeah, so I, the way Dora's treated really bothers me. Um, And I think I agree with Caddy that Davy is maybe given more slack than is good for him. The main thing for me with Dora and Davy is that nobody seems to remember that their mother just died and that like they really have just been kind of shuffled through being taken care of by different people who haven't really been caring for them and then they lose their mother 
and uh, and then they get sent to this farm and they're six and uh, I think you know if I'm gonna like put on my little like I don't know parenting child psychology hat we see two six-year-olds dealing with trauma in opposite ways we have Dora um, who is deciding to be really obedient and placate everybody and try to make sure nothing happens that way and then Davy who is trying to control whatever he can control um, and I'm the parent of a six-year-old right now so reading that uh, was really interesting for me and one of the really major things that happens at six is kids go through what uh, I have heard called the first puberty it's kind of that shift from being a little kid or a toddler to being like a kid a regular kid there's like a ton of brain development that happens there's a ton of body changes and that is hormonal like kids do have hormonal changes that affect them before they hit puberty um and one of the things that kids do really hardcore, both at three and at six, is push boundaries real hard. And Davy is pushing boundaries real hard. And the reason little kids push boundaries, the reason everybody pushes boundaries, is to know where those boundaries are. And with kids, it's really important to establish those firmly um, so that they feel safe. Because kids don't actually feel safe if they don't think their caretakers have a handle on the situation. And that doesn't have to mean being a strict disciplinarian. I think it shouldn't mean being a strict disciplinarian. But you need, do need to be able to hold compassionate boundaries. The scene that really kind of shocks me is when Davy locks his sister in the tool shed and lies to everybody about where she is, even when they're terrified that she's fallen in the well and drowned. She is cold and terrified and traumatized. And when they're dealing with him afterward, the issue becomes, well, he didn't know it was wrong to lie. The issue does not become, it is wrong to lock your sister in the tool shed. Um, and Dora becomes kind of like a prop in his shenanigans. And then Mar he's like, well, it wouldn't have be as funny if I hadn't lied to you. And Anne's like, oh, you know what? I can see that. And nobody's taking this traumatized little girl who's been locked by her only living family member in a tool shed for hours and hours and hours. And nobody's taking her and being like, hey, are you OK? <laughs> They're just all going, oh, Davy, you scamp. Don't tell lies. Um. The issue, in my opinion, is not so much the lying as the locking your sister in the fucking tool shed. That is mean. And a lot of the, the shenanigans he gets up to are mean things. And you, nobody, I feel like nobody sits him down and says, hey, the issue here is that you're being a jerk. Like, <laughs> stop being mean to everybody. Um, and like obviously you have to do that with offering connection and you have to do it compassionately but like at some point with a six-year-old who is pushing boundaries this way and I have a six-year-old who is stuck at home right now so we're navigating this um, you have to say hey you can't be a dick this is not how you build connection with people also six-year-olds totally understand that they get it. Um, and I find it interesting that you bring that up because I think for me, what it brought up was this idea of um, the gender differences in which children are reared. And I found it interesting because I was like, of course, Dora it's, is expected to be this 
perfect little flower, right? She's everything that Anne wasn't, basically. She's kind, um, she's well-mannered, mild-mannered even, I would say. Uh, She's just the picture of perfection. And I guess as the female sibling, that is also her role, is to learn that she's supposed to be... um, okay with being treated like crap I guess um which which obviously I find incredibly intense and vile (laughs) um and it's the same in the way that Davy is uh managed right there's very much this like huh boys well ha 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 have what else can we do with them they're just they are who they are and I find that really frustrating and the fact that Marilla and Anne are also so open about how much more they love Davy than they actually care about Dora, it it just it like that hit something really deep inside of me where I just went like, oh, you know, it's like my it's like when people are expecting a child and are you know incredibly excited by learning the gender of their growing fetus um and and those are things that don't necessarily i don't know one shouldn't be celebrated for their gender um you know unless they choose to um and in this context it's really just like ah you're a boy it's okay you can you can make people suffer as long as you don't lie about it um which i find exhausting (laughs) to a certain extent um but then I also had to put myself back in uh the context but regardless of context right Anne was a whippersnapper and she was uh, look at check out this fun language that is coming out because of this uh book um Anne's a young whippersnapper and and you know she gets along just fine so it's kind of almost like a book celebrating like be loud be brazen take up a lot of space and people won't beat you. People won't get too mad at you. It'll be okay, especially if you're a boy. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up something really good with that boys will be boys sort of suggestion, which is very much an undertone here, I think. And one of the things, I mean, both of you have kind of brought this up that bothers me most about Davy is I think there's a line and I don't have a page reference or anything where Anne says something about, oh, there's not really meanness in Davy. Like, she's basically saying that he's he's essentially good-natured and he's doesn't make trouble on purpose. And there are lots of the scrapes that he gets into, as as we say, that are just, like, him being heedless, being that sort of thing. But there are quite a few things that he does that are, I would say, very mean-spirited. Um, and the locking the sister in the, in the cupboard is, is a huge part of that. And then also, I mean, an element of that episode is that he thought it was funny that Anne and Marilla were so distressed. Um, and that's really troubling. And yeah, there's some very troubling things about like what we are allowing what we think it's okay for boys to enjoy and seek out that's that's playing out with Davy. I think also almost exclusively, possibly exclusively, the targets of his pranks are girls and women. So like, what is that teaching him? And I think really the idea there is that like he can get away with it with girls and women because they're not allowed to hit back, right? Which is so 
interesting in the sequel to a book where Anne breaks her slate over somebody's head for making fun of her, right? Like, where is that spirit? Why isn't Dora pushing Davy into the well? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I mean, not that I'm advocating for, for fratricide, but it's, it's, a, it's a weird divide for me where Anne, I mean, and we do have Marilla saying like, well, you were never really bad, Anne. You were just kind of weird. Um, and Davy is actually being malicious, which is true. Um, Anne almost gets a different treatment from the other girls in the book. Anne is more aligned with the boys, you know, like we get these twins and who is Anne aligned with? Anne's aligned with the boy twin. Um, Anne's favorites in the class are the bad little boys. We don't really see any other bad little girls, except for Anne, who isn't exactly bad. She's just kind of weird. But but do you, do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying like she's not aligned with this idea of docile femininity. And so it kind of becomes that the message isn't girls can be or do whatever it's Anne can be or do whatever oh yeah Anne is the only one with red hair Anne is the only one who's allowed to be boisterous it's true actually even all of her other girlfriends are not quite as bo- uh, as 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 energetic or uh, annoying shall we say as she is and it's very frustrating I guess to hear that um, I guess uh, Ellen Montgomery who you know seems to be thinking differently in terms of uh, education and probably closer to like a Louisa May Alcott although I know that the periods are not the same um, but yeah it is it is really infuriating to see that she was still a machine of the patriarchy and just like reproducing this uh while also trying to like because it feels like Anne is a a break in a certain type of in a certain stereotype but at the same time from what you just said Teffer it it, it really is interesting to think that Anne is the only one who is allowed that no other girl she's not there's no uh, there's no shine theory operating here there's no like we're paving the way for girls to be something more we're paving the way for the other girls in classes to 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 want more than just marriage and and perhaps a husband with a nice salary so yeah alas that just made me feel a little ho-hum but it also makes me think of last week when we talked about Anne being too much um, she is a character who's just so much and it's acceptable for her. But I wonder if this behavior would have been acceptable from Dora. Yeah, you two are bringing up really good points about that I hadn't super intensely thought about before. But yeah, Anne is the only, Anne is the only girl who gets to really break the mold a lot. Although, I mean, we also have Miss Lavender who's maybe who's maybe the closest we get to that. But I think Anne is Anne feels like in sort of my reflecting on this conversation we're having an example of not like other girls. Capital capitals on all of those words. Um like the other female characters we get, especially the ones who are near Anne in age are very, very fit the mold. And, and we're reminded of that a lot in ways that are kind of unkind. Like, even Diana, who, like, Anne loves, and so the books like a lot, I feel like, 
get subtly put down for following the conventions of her time and place, uh, which I think is broadly how a lot of the other female characters are treated as well. This segues really nicely, I think, into a conversation I wanted to have around uh, the Anne books, which is the idea of them as young adult lit. Because the, uh, I would say the concept, the like marketing term of young adult doesn't arrive until probably the 1980s at the earliest, although there were books specifically for teenagers before then. Um, at this time, kind of like with Little Women at, at that time, there weren't a lot of books marketed at young people necessarily that weren't just kind of morality tales. And it's funny to find this book that is 100 years old that is actually falling into so many of the tropes of young adult lit um, that still exist, which I guess makes sense because obviously literature borrows from other literature. So we do have young adult authors reading Anne of Green Gables and then having that influence their work. Uh, But there is a good element of not like other girls. There's a good element of like chosen one exceptionalism with Anne. And I think it's really interesting to kind of think about what young adult means way before the term got established and and why we can still read it as young adult, why we can still read it as young adult, and what else we might be able to read as young adult. Like, I was thinking specifically about Jane Austen, which most of her books are about a teenage protagonist and a coming-of-age narrative. So, you know, should we be reading Pride and Prejudice? Like, what is young adult? Oh, what a good question. And I think it's a question without, I mean, obviously it's a question without an answer, but it it truly is interesting to think about that because those are books that we often refer back to constantly. They are the canon. And uh, I mean, while circumstances change, one would hope that you know, and development with it, uh, one would hope that like, uh, there's still an interesting like through line of, of, of human nature and human appreciation for a certain type of, a certain type of literature. I think that having these young women be exceptional by breaking rules opens the door for a lot of folks, but we're still create it's still being created in a context where, yeah, where girls still have to fit a certain mold. I mean, let's be honest like Anne comes back and is beautiful but she's not she doesn't seem like an exceptional beauty but at least I guess her her redheadedness keeps her in the trope of the exceptional character uh storyline as you were mentioning right before so I think that's really that's really something I just want to hit back on um Ms. Lavender for one quick moment um, because Ms. Lavender is closer to what Anne would be like, but I find that Ms. Lavender is actually a cautionary tale. Um, she's, you know, she, she, she has lived uh, her own life and all that, but she has been alone, right? She's, she's, she's Ms. Ms. Lavender is like, she's doing her own thing but what a lonely life nonetheless and she's a bit of that tale for Anne because Anne is on the cusp right of adulthood of having to make these big life decisions am I gonna get married or am I gonna what am I gonna just teach forever um and it's interesting to think that like I saw Miss Lavender as like as like what happens when a woman stays that way too long 
And obviously at the very end, uh, Ms. Lavender marries Mr. Irving, which is very sweet and all that. But but it's like she has to atone for her wildness uh, all these years until the man that she actually loved comes back um, uh, from widowhood. <laughs> um, and I found that really interesting. It's like, Anne, here's what you should not do. So I'm fully expecting Anne to get engaged or married very soon. Book three, book four, Max. Yeah, I think bringing up Miss Lavender as sort of a, a foil, I guess, is really interesting because it it plays with with this idea of like we see Anne as a character who is we're supposed to praise her for flouting the conventions of the time, but then Miss Lavender is somebody who has almost done that too much, is how we're supposed to read her, I think. Um so it's very interesting. I want to just touch back on what we were talking about about young adult literature because it's it's making me wonder. Taffer, you were talking about how this has a lot of the same conventions or a lot of the same themes that we find in modern young adult literature, and so now I'm just getting really curious about now do those themes show up because they're conventions of the genre, or do they show up because of just like human psychology and the way that our society is structured and the the answer is probably both and but um it's just really interesting that we see over and over in literature this sort of especially I think with female protagonists um and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call this I think an offshoot of misogyny is that the way that the way that stories get us try to get us to like female characters is making them different um and and it's just it's just so interesting to think about how that relates to misogyny and like the way to be a likable or good woman or girl is to be in some way not the way that people expect women and girls to be. It's really like that trope, you know, that we see where like the like cool girlfriend, right, who like eats a bunch of burgers but never gets fat and like isn't obsessive about her look but always looks perfect um it's this idea of like performing femininity in a way that is effortless and a little quirky um and yeah I mean that is like obviously there's been like tons and tons and tons of scholarship around this Anne has red hair so she's not you know Diana who is the stunning beauty of the time but she has her perfect classic nose and like she is made sure to become acceptable by the time she is at a marketable age, right? Um, and I mean, that is, it, it is hard to get away from those confines. There's also just a whole conversation around publication and around what books can get published and around what books could get published at the time. And frankly, it's, it's kind of a wonder uh, that a lot of these female authors got published at all while keeping any kind of spirit in their books yeah that 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 definitely resonates that definitely resonates and I mean I'm guessing that Ellen Montgomery publishing this book opened the doors to a lot of folks to be able to to write this type of story uh and to write this these types of characters I guess uh you know from a from a feminine perspective, which is which is really interesting. I love that you talk about Anne's marketing. 
um, you know, uh, even for courting or for anything else, right? It's, it's, she is the original uh, manic pixie girl um, who goes through a transformation, removes the glasses, puts the red hair in a bun, puts on an actual school teacher's uh, school marm dress, I want to say, and uh, all of a sudden is very beautiful and people will be very taken with her. Um, and it is sad that that the only way that we can get likable characters uh, of this sort is to have them turn into men. And it reminds me of um, there was a campaign that was launched by a young girl in the U.S., uh, maybe like a handful to 10 years ago, where she was tired of reading about young boys and their dogs. So she started this campaign to collect like something like 10,000 titles of books for children about anything other uh, than white boys and their dogs. Um, and it was really interesting to to see that this is the repertoire, right? We cater to the largest possible audience, I guess, or I said we as if I have anything to do with this other than like shitting on books. Um, but um, I'll speak to the royal we, uh, we society. Uh, um, take these on and, and it's interesting. We sell them to the lowest common denominator and it's like it makes everybody feel safe. We're not challenging people. We're not pushing them outside of outside of their comfort zones until we get like Oprah's book club or Reese Witherspoon's book club or whatever. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting to think about like what kinds of stories we get told and why, why we look for those stories and why there's not necessarily like room for other stories. I've been kind of in a, in a like space of reading old books by female authors the past couple of weeks because I've been reading these obviously for the show and also uh, finally got around to watching the Greta Gerwig Little Women which is a great adaptation which I enjoyed I would argue that that possibly Joe March is the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, but you know we could even go back to Shakespeare I don't know um, and I've also been rereading The Secret Garden to my kid because she really likes The Secret Garden, uh, which is holy, holy colonialism. Oh boy, in that book. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about kind of there is this current of highly, highly successful books by female authors about girls who break the mold a little, but all of them involve a glow up. All of them involve... Uh, I mean, not The Secret Garden because she's a child, but involve getting married. And that's something Greta Gerwig really skewers in the newest adaptation of Little Women, which is a lot of fun to see. There is definitely this idea of being being a little bit, but not being too much, which is really interesting because we talk about Anne a lot as being too much which is as one of our one of our uh, listeners actually tweeted about this um it's a really mean thing to say to somebody <laughs> like it's very very mean to tell somebody that they're too much but like the parameters of the book themselves are saying this is okay until you're not a child anymore and to an extent that is true because all of us have to learn how to be in the world among other people without driving them uh, up the wall but it, it's just kind of interesting to think I'm just I'm just like free associating here, but kind of like childhood is the space where you can experiment and then you have to get married and you have to get serious um, because there's no room 
in the world for a woman with that much imagination. That just depressed me. (laughs) Yeah, now I'm wishing that maybe we'll have to revisit this at another point. Because we're going to be stopping... We're going to be stopping at Anne of Windy Poplars, which Anne is an adult in Windy Poplars, but we get books where she's an older adult afterwards. Um, and it would be so interesting to be able to revisit this conversation after having read, um, say, Anne of Angleside. Um, and really seeing how that plays out, because, yeah, I'm, I'm interested now in thinking about how how that plays out in in Anne's later history yeah I guess it makes sense that we're ending uh you know as Anne enters young adulthood or medium adulthood because this is a young adult uh lit show but I am interested to um read the whole series and kind of see how it plays out because a lot of feminists I know love these oh boy (laughs) yeah yeah, I'm. I actually would be interested to to see that as well. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll take a little YA break and um, read the Anne as an adult book. Sorry, books. I mean, you know what? Like all bets are off at this point in the world. Can... <laughs> there are no certainties. I think we should review Emma. I think Emma is a great young adult book. So is Pride and Prejudice. It's true. Emma, she's just like more of a teenager, you know, I feel like. Uh, what are uh, predictions for book three? Um, as, uh, uh, oh, oh, Teffer, what are your predictions for book three? Because you haven't read this one. I haven't read it. I'm pretty sure Anne and Gilbert are going to get married. But with how slow their romance is burning, I would believe they just get engaged. Um, I think Gilbert is going to decide to go to medical school, but I think I maybe know that. I guess college is going to happen. So like Keggers and Boca Raton. I agree. Um, I think uh, Anne is definitely going to I, I maintain my prediction of Anne and Gilbert hooking up passionately, very uh, Lori and Joe style um, when they... No, no, Laurie and Joe, why did I open that wound of mine? Why? 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 I just hope that, like, Gilbert doesn't end up, like, secretly hooking up with Diana or something. That would be, that would be dreadful. Um, And I think Diana ends up engaged, no? I would bet Diana gets engaged before Anne. And, And Anne gets super snarky about it. And then, did that just already happen? Diana gets engaged at the end of this book. Yeah, okay. Okay, there we go. That's why I had that so firmly in my head. Maybe it's because I have this sweet, like, little, like, queer dream of, like, Anne being like, hey, Diana, want to teach the patriarchy a new one? And, like, just kind of, like, cut all the laces on her corset and, like, have at her. But um, maybe I should write some fanfic. Some Anne and Diana fanfic. (laughs) That would upset everyone in my nation so perhaps I should not I was just gonna say I think that's very available in the text and it would only upset the straight people in the nation (laughs) so I mean my my problem with that fanfic is I don't know if Diana would be into it but Anne definitely would be um I think we might meet characters later who are even more um amenable to a slash pairing with Anne and that is that is the teaser that I will leave you with. 
Speaking of slash pairings, I don't think we can just slide on by Marilla and Rachel Lind finally moving in together. No comment on that one. (laughs) It's called Late in Life Lesbianism. Haven't you heard of it? There's a really good song in the Anne and Gilbert musical about that, and I like it a lot. About late in life lesbianism? (laughs) No, about Marilla and Rachel. Yes, they're roommates with one bedroom. I love it. I'm very excited for them. Marilla finally finds love. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyeahpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yeahpodcast, and individually, I'm at catty double underscore D. I'm at the Balesosaurus. And I'm at Teffer Bear. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhope, and Chantel Thomas. And this is just a little extra plug. As we all know, the world is kind of going bonkers right now. Um, And small content creators like us can really use support if you're able to give it. Uh, and we're very appreciative. Um, in other ways to give us support, we have merch. It's really nice merch. It features the awesome logo that Bailey designed for us at the beginning of this show. Uh, you can get it on a t-shirt. You can get it on a mug. You can get it on a tote bag to put your library books in. Um, so hit the merch link in the description of this episode if you want to get some of that sweet, sweet merch action from the folks over at Tee Public. You get to support them, you get to support us, you get to support the Postal Service. It's a win-win-win. Yet another way that you can support us for free this time is by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or by checking us out on Spotify. And by sharing this episode with a friend, perhaps someone who has strong opinions about education and the roles of women in literature. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by me, Tevra Jemian, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye! 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 Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 plus experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gays in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast.